Okay, you might be sort of gleaning. This sounds a little different today, right? Uh, you hear somebody putting something into a device at the beginning there? Yes, that would be the sound of a cassette. So the genesis of this show was kind of the opposite of the genesis of somebody's life. Uh, I, I read obits a lot, and I saw an obit for uh, the man who invented the cassette tape. Uh, and his name was Lou Ottens. Uh, and I thought, wow, we've never done a show about cassettes and cassette culture. Because that's almost weird considering some of the other shows that we've done. And so I contacted Jonathan McPants, who produces this kind of show for us. And he agreed that everybody agreed that it was weird that we hadn't done this show. I believe the United Nations put out a statement later that day saying it was strange that the Colin McEnroe show had never done a show about cassettes. But we're going to do that now. Um, the first time you probably saw a cassette, particularly if you're sort of, you know, like my age-ish. It probably seemed like an unlikely object of romance, right? It's it's mainly romantic, I think, in opposition to the CD and the streaming platforms that came along and more or less crowded it out. The cassette tape was kind of the last time that music wasn't data, right? I mean, the primary uses for them were copying somebody else's uh, LP, which I did a lot. Uh, but more than that, making mixtapes for other people. I mean, that's the more powerful, alluring, and addictive experience. So addictive and so primal and so keyed to the cassette tape that even today, when we make something like that that's not made on tape, we, we still might call it a mixtape. The, the term has kind of survived, uh, just the way podcasting is no longer listened to on iPods. Uh, so um, at the end of the movie High Fidelity, John Cusack's character even kind of explains this his whole philosophy and aesthetic for making these mixtapes. Mix uh, and when I when I first saw the movie, when he gives that little speech, I kind of stood at attention because I, I guess maybe I thought I was the only person who did it that way, who really thought very strategically about what I was going to put on the tape and, and, and really thought about the person who would be getting the tape uh, and customizing it for them. And there's also that interesting physical quality. You know, I mean, there's what Nicholson Baker, the writer, would call the felt crunch as you press close the cover of a cassette player, uh, you know, and everything kind of locks into place. So, you know, when I began romancing the woman whom I'm with now and will be spending the rest of my life with, I made mixtapes for her, but they were on CDs. You know, and I pulled them probably off my iTunes uh, files. And it was much easier to do than making a mixtape. But somehow or other, it felt more like work. Uh, you know, it just didn't, it felt like data. Uh, it didn't feel so organic. Um, so we continue to romance one another with music. And there's a romance to the cassette. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, because in it turns out the cassette is kind of coming back. Uh, Zach Taylor is joining us, commercial director and documentary filmmaker. You may see uh, the, film, the feature-length film he directed, Cassette, a documentary mixtape on uh, Amazon Prime. There will be some commercials uh, you won't mind. Uh, and Lori Gill is a writer in the tech industry. She published a piece called Remember Cassette Tapes. They're more fun to listen to than digital music at iMore last year. Uh, we have other guests coming along here, but we'll uh, get going with them uh, right now. So, Zach Taylor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, we should say that there is um, a renaissance going on. It's interesting. We'll talk about Lou Ottens, the inventor, more in the second uh, segment of, of this show. But, but in your movie, he's kind of talking in a very 
you know, sort of, I don't know, valedictive way about it. It was like, goodbye, goodbye, cassette tapes, this thing I've invented. 50 years have gone by, and now it's time for you to die. But that's not very the case. Dutch. Yeah, very, very Dutch. Very Dutch, I think, is the word you're looking for. Right. Yes. That's not the case at all, right? I mean, there's, I think, around 2013, 2014, there starts to be a renaissance. That's not the case at all. Yeah, you're right. Um, cassettes are far from dead. And uh, what started me off on this journey of, um, you know, talking about cassettes, um, interviewing people about cassettes, gosh, it was, you know, 10 years ago at this point, I read um, a headline that the Oxford English Dictionary was taking the term cassette tape out of, well, <laughs> ostensibly out of the dictionary. But as it turns out, they took the term out of their print edition, which makes a little more sense. Every year they kind of, um, you know, kick some words out to make room for, you know, words like, uh, you know, I think that year it was selfie and uh, sexting, stuff like that, you know, mm -hmm. kind of newer, more relevant words. <laughs> so, so yeah, so they're, they're, they're back in play to a significant degree, and it's now increasingly the case. I think in 2014 or 2015, for example, Metallica released its original demo, but as, uh, as a cassette. It, you can go into Urban Outfitters and buy a Lana Del Rey cassette or something these days. Uh, and, um, well, actually, we should hear a little bit uh, from the movie itself. This is a montage from Cassette, a documentary mixtape. From a commercial point of view, it's really very, very niche. Vinyl, for example, which everyone talks about, you'd think, you know, we were tripping over for vinyl the way people discuss it sometimes. I think still only accounts for less than 2% of the overall recorded music sales um, in this country. Cassette is, is way below that. Sometimes I wonder if people are just, are just trying to be difficult, you know, do cassette re releases. Having said that, I still have a cassette player in my car. I have a CD cassette player, and God forbid, I mean, I've had to buy a new one, I'm going to be, it'll be a sad day, because they're getting very hard to find. And I don't really see any reason to put out music on a format that you can't play. It's the same reason why people go back to vinyl. It's like, because it's, you know, because it sounds better, you know, or, it's all because because we're unoriginal. That's why the cassette's coming back in, because everything has been done now. The last voice is Damien Gerardo, uh, a musician and a musician who kind of made himself known initially, I think, by uh, cassette tapes, as he says uh, in the movie. But I'm guessing uh, that you don't necessarily agree with the sentiment, um, uh, Zach Taylor, that cassettes are coming back because we're unoriginal. Uh, I mean, I can't speak for everyone. I sometimes feel like I'm unoriginal. But, um, you know, I think there's so many other reasons behind it. I think what's missing from music now is something very tangible, something uh, experiential. And I think you hit the, the nail right on the head when you were talking earlier about making mix uh, CDs, about how that kind of feels like work, right? You're sitting at your computer. The motions are literally the same as if you're, you know, responding to that email or doing your taxes or whatever it is, but making a, you know, listening to or certainly making a mixtape, that is a, an experience all its own. Right. And I think also, you know, those mixed CDs, 
the other thing that I notice about them, because they're still around the house these days, is that pretty soon the kind of generic little white sleeve with a window on it that you put it in, I don't know, that gets lost. And they're just like, they're just kind of sliding around the, like this, these kind of anonymous little disks. Uh, uh, and, and they don't necessarily have the kind of chunky, blocky reality uh, of a cassette. But maybe this is time also to bring Lori Gill into the conversation uh, because um, you really uh, have engaged in advocacy for the CD. I assume you think, well, I know from your essay, it's not just a matter of being unoriginal. You actually think there's something better, realer, warmer, more human about them? That's correct. Yeah, I, I've always felt that that the tape is this tiny album and it kind of stems from, you know, when when musicians were making records back in the day when, you know, they were making albums, a lot of it would have to do with not just the music itself, but also the artwork, the inserts, the thank you liner notes, all the things that kind of come together to make a full album. And a tape, a cassette tape is, is a tiny version of that. And it's, it's this little piece of art that, that the musician and the artists collaborate on and make together and then they they give it to us, and then we get to absorb it and appreciate it. And it's kind of a wonderful little thing. Well, I mean, also, there's a way in which we kind of interact with the thing itself. Like, who has not inserted a pencil uh, into the one of the <laughs> holes there and wound the tape back up when there was slack in it? And, and Lori, there's a way in which the tape feels like our presence. It's hard to make an impression on a CD, you know, by just by listening to it. I mean, you could accidentally scratch it up or something. But just using a cassette, pretty soon, right, there's some hiss and stuff like that that comes in there. <laughs> that's true. The more you listen to your tape, the worse the quality of it gets. That That's true. Yeah. It, uh, they do start to wear out. And there's also a little bit of joy in that, too, and just knowing that you've listened to your tape so much that you've worn it down a little. <laughs> Right. Well, the the tape knows that you exist. Your your CD yes. does not know that you exist, but the, yeah. the cassette kind of knows that you, you exist. So, Zach Taylor, um, I'm also thinking. I, I kind of re- referenced this already, but there's something human scale about cassettes too, right? There's they're kind of the shape of a hand. The CD is not the shape of anything. It really, you know, it's a perfect circle, but th- there's not a lot of that in your life. The, the cassette's kind of the shape of your hand. And, you know, there is that kind of interesting clunky, crunchy noise that, you know, and feeling of pressing down. It's like using a stapler or something. You just sort of feel the mechanism of it. I, I just, I would assume, and I think it is said by people, maybe Henry Rollins uh, in your movie, that the, the, somehow or other the cassette is more human. That, absolutely, the cassette is more human and it's more it's more mechanical as well uh there's something about the fact that it has moving parts and that you can see what it's doing even if you know even if it's not behaving the way you want it to like uh, you know uh, like other humans you know like other relationships in our lives you know it doesn't always go as planned sometimes you put the tape in and you you have this whole mess of of you know cassette tape like balled up in your hands you know but it is absolutely it's it's I don't think it's any surprise or any coincidence that it's also the size of like those original um iPods like you mentioned you know Mm. when Steve Jobs is developing this thing I think his intentions were very much in line with like those those Philips engineers back in the 60s where it just you can cradle it in the palm of your hand well it's yeah something special 
The other thing, Zach, that sort of the, it, it coincided with two technologies of use. Uh, one of them was the Walkman. The other one was the Boombox. Um, and these were both about the idea that you take your music with you, which you couldn't do very easily with a vinyl phonograph record or you know, reel-to-reel or something. There was this notion now that I'm going to walk around with my music. Absolutely. I think it's so hard to, uh, to overstate the importance there because um, being able to carry music with you was nothing short of a revolution. And when we're talking about the size of cassettes and the physical attributes of the cassette, it's important to remember that um, Phillips and Lou Otten's, um, I know we'll, we'll get into that um, in depth later, but when they were developing this thing, their, their focus wasn't on the actual tape itself, the piece of plastic. Their focus was on the recorder, and they wanted to make the recorder something that you could fit in your pocket. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so Laurie, I want to talk a little bit about how bands use them, too. We'll be talking about that throughout the show. But I do remember years ago uh, I was doing a profile of a kind of folk rock group called The Neilds. Uh, this is a magazine profile. But I, I talked to a guy named Ed McCune, who's still around, who uh, hosts a kind of folk kind of radio. And he talked about getting a cassette in the mail and, like, I think, written either onto the, onto the label of the cassette or, or onto the envelope was, please, 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 please listen to this. Um, and, and there's a way in which for the band, particularly for the band that doesn't have a big recording contract and stuff like that, it feels like the cassette is some kind of entry level form of recording. But you would know way more about that. Yeah, the cassette is, is this equalizer in the music industry. Now, today, digital music becomes a stronger equalizer. But when you're out playing shows and people like your band and they, they want to support you, they want to buy something from you. And um, vinyl is pretty expensive and people aren't really just buying CDs at shows anymore. So the tape becomes this sort of low cost version of a way to get music out. And in the in the punk world, which is where I spend most of my musical time, tapes have always kind of just been around. They they never really went away. Um, people make demo tapes all the time. So even if you were later planning on putting something out that was more official, quote unquote, um, on, you know, on vinyl or CD or something like that, you are starting out with a demo tape. And, and today it's even more powerful than it was before. There are um, record labels that will put out a band's first album or their next album exclusively on tape. And that becomes their official release. I remember when I was first in a band in, uh, let's say, I think it was 1998, we put out our first album full length on cassette and it was not a demo. It was our official cassette. And we sent it out for review to different um, um, magazines so they would review it. And we put a little note in there that said, this is not a demo tape. This is our official release. And they still put it in the demo tape section because that was just the way they did things. But today, the cassette tape is is an official release for a lot of bands. You know, Zach, one thing that um, struck me as I was reading more about this, too, is that when we say that cassettes are coming back, well, I mean, Lori's saying they never entirely went away, but to whatever extent they are coming back, there's uh, more production of them. I think even companies like TIAC have wrapped up, uh, ramped up their you know, slightly higher-end cassette players and stuff like that. It seems to be driven, as these things often are, not so much by 
baby boomers like me who can't let go of the past or even Gen Xers who can't get let, can't let go of the past it seems to be driven a little bit more by people in their 30s who wouldn't really necessarily have imprinted uh, on the cassette as a medium the first time around. 100%. And um, a great deal, I would say, is, when I was interviewing people for the film, it was probably split right down the middle. Um, you know, cassette aficionados or cassette labels or just, you know, people who consumed music on cassette. I think um, it was kind of a 50-50 split, people who had grown up with them and people who had not. And I think you find the younger generation, like I'm 38 years old and I'm kind of on the tail end of like, uh, you know, having made mixtapes in the 90s and having, you know, bought my first album on cassette because I couldn't afford the CD. But then you talk to these, um, you know, kids in their 20s, in their late teens who are just discovering the cassette and they were are totally detached from like the stress of it or the inconvenience of it or this kind of underdog stigma that it always had for those of us who, you know, grew up with them. You know, I think the one word we haven't used yet, Laurie, we're going to have to take a break here in just a second, but it's a word that you use in your essay, is the word fun. You know, and one of the places I, I am reminded of that is in Guardians of the Galaxy, where obviously, you know, uh, Star-Lord, uh, you know, I mean, it's so much of his own worldview is shaped, you know, rather poignantly by these, these mixtapes uh, that his mom uh, has made for him before she died. But... Once you kind of sever that particular emotional connection, what you notice over and over again is it's fun, right? This is a fun thing. That's so true. Just everything about a cassette tape is just this kind of delightful experience from the moment you unwrap the cellophane on the outside and you unfold the J card and you read all the inserts, you pop that tape in and, you know, you get that little bit of a hiss. It's just this fun for me, nostalgia for young people. I think it's just a discovery of a new way to listen to music even the irritation of you have you can't just skip to the next song. You actually have to <laughs> fast forward if you don't like a song. There's there's it's all engaging and it's all this part of like celebrating music and kind of being a part of music as opposed to it just being in the background as you go about your daily life. All right, we have to. We're gonna we're gonna uh, end this segment. We're gonna pop a, a, a CD in the player. Um, we're going to play the entirety, actually, of a song that Laurie Gill sings on, Glass Castles, by the band Sick Burn from their 2018 demo, Demo 2018, which is available on cassette. We should say that the song is 38 seconds long, and Jonathan McPants, our producer, had to censor it five times. <laughs> but uh, thanks to Laurie Gill for visiting with us. Zach Taylor is going to stick around. We'll be back after this. Mm-hmm. 
That, of course, is Peter Gabriel. But the point of that is, it's it's not Peter Gabriel, it's John Cusack. What is it about John Cusack and cassette tapes? It's John Cusack holding a boombox over his head, trying to woo. What is it about wooing and cassette tapes? Trying to woo his estranged beloved back uh, in the movie Say Anything. Uh, so, yes, we're talking about cassette tapes today. Uh, and I guess we're talking about wooing to a certain degree. Uh, joining us is Zach Taylor, commercial director and documentary filmmaker. Uh, he directed the feature-length film Cassette, a documentary mixtape. And in just a moment or two, you will meet Summer McCoy, founder of the Mixtape Museum, an online archive project established to collect, preserve, and share knowledge of mixtape history. So, um, Zach Taylor, uh, we keep evoking the romance uh, of the cassette and the and the mixtape that you make with the cassette or on the cassette. Uh, but you introduce us to the man who is responsible not only for the cassette, but for the fact we're doing the show, as I say. This all started because I saw his obituary. His name is Lou Ottens. Uh, and as... Uh, as inventors of a very romantic medium go, he's a pretty unromantic guy. He's pre- he's pretty much an engineer, right? Percent. He's stubborn. Uh, he was stubborn to the core. He was st- still today the most difficult interview I've ever done as a <laughs> filmmaker. But you know, also, you know, one of the most endearing. You know, once uh, I had to visit this guy multiple times, um, or I should say, I had the privilege of visiting this guy multiple times over many years. But I think towards the end, there we finally came to an understanding where he was he was actually pretty. Um, pretty proud of the cassette. Oh, yeah. No, I, I think no question. And, and you know, he, he makes that very clear. Um, but let's hear a little bit uh, from the movie. Uh, here is the, uh, one of the interviews with Lou Ottens. You're not a nostalgic person, are you? No, not, no, no. When your time has gone, uh, it's time to disappear. If there are better products than cassette, well, then you stop. I don't believe in eternity. That's the basic thing. And <laughs> the crazy thing, it's not yet over. Huh? <laughs> there are still all those crazy people who are working with cassettes. Hmm? Now it's nostalgia, more or less. People prefer a worse quality of sound out of nostalgia. It's not often you hear the inventor of something crapping on it so <laughs> so avidly. So, oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, um, I mean, we should say that, like so many inventions, in a way this, this the cassette arose out of Otten's dissatisfaction with big clunky reel-to-reel tape recorders, right? For sure. As an engineer, um, his obsession his lifelong obsession was uh just to make music smaller to make it as you said more portable but i think maybe most importantly to make it user friendly so that you didn't have to know how to you know spool tape through a reel to reel uh you know player to enjoy music so we should uh, we we need we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the the way in which the cassette uh, is you know, interwoven uh, with the history of hip hop. So that's one of the reasons Summer McCoy is here. As I said, founder of the Mixtape Museum, an online archive project. Summer McCoy, welcome to our show. 
Hi, thanks for having me. So it, hip-hop's interesting, too, right? Because it, it, it begins to use cassettes for when we say mixtape, usually personally we're talking about a tape maybe we made for ourselves or we made for other people. But the, the mixtape gets used in, in a different way, and it goes so far back into the roots of hip hop that it certainly wasn't nostalgia. This, we're talking about the 1970s and 80s, where the uh, a cassette was a cassette tape was a very vital and vivid thing anyway. But explain what was happening with some of those early artists. Yeah, it's funny. I just had a conversation with Paradise from X-Clan, who's also the chief curator at the Universal Hip Hop Museum. And we talked about how he experienced like the earliest of mixtapes, which is what you just mentioned in the 70s and 80s, um, when recording was happening directly from either like a reel to reel or a vinyl to a cassette, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then... Later in the 80s, you had DJs that were recording their live sets at clubs, right? You had the park jams that were in the communities that were happening that were also recorded on cassette. So a lot of hip hop's earliest moments are on cassette. Like it's one of the earliest documents of record. Um, And because the cassette gave people the ability to record on their own, you really got recordings from people in the community, right? So it was the closest to hip hop that you can get. Um, And so the public cassettes, how I like to explain to people is there's the private ones that you mentioned, the ones we might've made in our bedroom. Maybe I might've made one for Zach or, you know, decided that I wanted to make one for an event. But then the public ones or commercial tapes were the ones that you were seeing that were recorded in public settings like a club in a park jam and there in or in sometimes the intent was to make sure it was dubbed or copied and spread out into the into the community or into the world um and those are the public tapes that are attached to those to, to certain djs that a lot of the collectors that we work with at the mixtape museum are collecting but um, so we, yeah, we can give people a little sense of how that so- sounds. This is uh, from uh, DJ uh, Ron G live at the Cotton Club side. A uh, we'll have uh, well, I should say Epe Ding Dong collection, uh, Paris, France. Let's hear a, a little bit of this. I said one for the money, two for the base. Come on, Ron G, let's rock this place. Hey, Ron G, I check the rhyme, y'all. So uh, before I go back to summer, Zach Taylor, there's, you know, there's something, once again, this kind of primal sense. And you think about, you know, uh, I don't know, I think about first starting to hear hip hop uh, around the city of Hartford in the 1980s on boom boxes. I mean, that sound and the hiss you hear in the background and everything, it all feels very organic, like it's all tied together in one single aesthetic. It is. And I th- I'm so glad you brought up the boom box because I think that ties into hip hop and the um you know the broadcasting of hip hop the enjoyment of hip hop because this all comes down to record in you know the record industry these uh, record companies were by and large very late to the party late to realize that hip hop wasn't just a fad wasn't some kind of uh 
subversive uh, counterculture not worth um, you know, legitimizing. They came late to the party realizing that they could in fact make money off of it. So that's why the cassette and the boombox had such a loud voice in the conversation. Not only was it important to disseminate this stuff on little clunky pieces of plastic, but also you had to turn it up as loud as you could to spread the word. Yeah, I mean, you know, this went on, Summer, for a, a much longer time than people might imagine. And the only reason that I know this is that I used to work for a CBS-owned radio station, and we were in a building with three other radio stations, and one of them was kind of the preeminent hip-hop station in Connecticut. And so artists would come in all the time. And I remember one day, this guy, and they would sort of walk behind the glass of where my studio was, and my producer could kind of see over my shoulder, and he was kind of a young guy. And he said... You see that guy? His name is 50 Cent. He was shot nine times. That was the thing that he knew about 50 Cent at that moment. But the, the thing that became clear was he didn't have a, a, a conventional album out at this point. I mean, people really knew who, who he was uh, because of uh, a street tape. This is like how you could get known. Yes. Um, yes. And 50 was one of those early artists to really change uh how the mixtape evolved during that time because you went from having a mixtape with a bunch of different artists on it hosted by a DJ um, to just G-Unit, <laughs> right? And, and Who Kid. Um, 50 also had an amazing DJ named Who Kid who was his host on most of those tapes. Um, and then you saw a lot of you know, G-Unit artists um, also being featured. So he used it in a very unique way. So did Diddy. Mm -hmm. um, Bad Boy is built on the remix. Um, and Ron G, who's a very important piece of that remix um, narrative, is still doing remixes today. And I just want to mention that that recording that you played um, has Love Bug Star Ski on it, which is extra special because we just lost him recently. Um, and he's was very important to the to the narrative of mixtapes and hip hop. Yeah, this is kind of summer a story, both in terms of the early mixtapes, where in fact you, know, you could you could buy a mixtape where you'd maybe hear various artists and become acquainted with them that, that way, and artists who haven't quite arrived yet but are able to to get their work known. This is all a little bit of a story of the artists themselves taking control of their own destiny. It's a story we tell more, I think, these days with digital music. But this, in this very analog way, was also, I guess, a way, a way that music could travel, right? You could throw a bunch of these uh, cassettes into the back of a, uh, the trunk of a car and drive from New York to Philadelphia and kind of break an artist in, in a new city. Yeah, I mean, and that is what, um, I mean, a, a great example would be when I first started working in the music industry, I was working with the Clips, who were pretty known at the time. Um, and we put out a mixtape because we couldn't put out a, an album because of legal reasons. And we wanted to make sure that their music was still, you know, being heard by their fans. Um, and that mixtape ended up extending our tour um, and also getting us our next record deal. So... Yeah, the artists use the mixtape for promotional purposes, <laughs> like, and the DJs knew that the the art the the labels knew that. Um, but there's still, uh, uh, you know, there's still a little insensitivity when it comes to hey, we want you to play our music, but yet you know it's still not legal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's another like weird part of of that whole relationship. Uh, yeah. 
You know, Zach, I was talking about kind of the human contours of this uh, of the cassette tape, uh, and I think there's a moment in uh, your movie where there's a guy saying, oh, no, yeah, you buy three copies of one cassette, one to play, one for stock, and one to swap. I, I don't know if I got that right. Something like that. Uh, but that idea of swap, right, that's another way that there's a human con- contour. I've got a CD in my hand. You've got a CD in uh, a CD. I've got, I've got a cassette tape in my hand. You've got a cassette tape in your hand, uh, and we swap them. There's something about that exchange that that happens very naturally with this particular medium. I think, you know, listening to uh, listening to you talk right now, I just it just popped into my head that cassette tapes might very well be um, uh, the first the original form of cryptocurrency <laughs> for that reason. Because take the. I mean, hip hop is a is a perfect lens to look at this through. Um, you know, Kid Capri, Ron G, and then on the other side of the musical spectrum, you have Jerry Garcia, you have the Grateful Dead. Um, you know, both of these cultures very much embracing and leaning into uh, cassette uh, recording and cassette sharing. Where uh, I, you know, you and I, Colin, can have the same recording of uh, that Ron G Cotton Club uh, performance, but mine sounds like crap because it's like a 10th generation uh, copy, right? And you have like a tape that somehow you pulled it from the board, and now I'm bugging you every day because I want that copy. <laughs> yes, the term stepped on, I think, was got uh, used a lot back in those days. So, But that's an interesting thing too, Zach, just for a second here, because another thing that cassettes are connected to uh, is bootleg, you know, and and different artists have different attitudes about bootleg. There are some jam bands who think, good, I don't, we don't care, make, make, make as many recordings of us as you want and swap them all around. I don't think that's necessarily everybody's attitude. No, it's not. I think the record industry... Um, I'm as a sidebar, I'm working on my next project and it probably comes as no surprise that it's also going to be about cassettes. Mm. And uh, I'm, I'm really deep diving right now into this whole uh, home taping is killing music uh, campaign that the uh, BPI, the British Phonographic Institute launched back in the early eighties. You know, it's fear is very powerful. And I think um, the record industry historically has held all the marbles, you know, and you want to keep those marbles, I understand. Um, But music itself never suffered because of the cassette. Music industry, uh, you know, probably not either, but that's certainly what they were afraid of. Yeah, and I, you know, Summer, I think about that in the world of hip hop too. Some of the you know early gains of hip hop took tremendous risks uh, in terms of just losing control of copyright or things like that. I mean, I guess these artists had to be comfortable with the idea, particularly in the early going, that some of their music would wind up on wix, on mixtapes where I assume they weren't remunerated. Yeah, I mean, I think specific to hip hop, um, someone like a. a Great example is Justo uh, Faison, who's founder of the Mixtape Awards. When he, when he was a, a record promoter and he was the person that, you know, served the DJs with vinyl and he decided, okay, we don't, we have a very small budget. Um, let me start targeting the mixtapes that they're putting out. So he's working for the label, right? And he's going to the DJ because there is an agreement with the artist and the and you know and the label, like we need to promote this record. Um, and those relationships 
are important. I mean, ha- me having been in a room with the artists as the manager and the label, you actually have those conversations. What DJs do you want to service? Um, and sometimes in those conversations, there's talk about like how much to pay the DJ. So, you know, and and then the artists will also have their own relationship with the DJ or DJs that they know are going to play their music or they know are going to give them placement. So it's a really multi-layered, unfair <laughs> relationship. But I think the the promotion that artists got from mixtapes, um, a, a point that Zach made, like, sure, the music industry may have suffered, but music did not suffer from the cassette tape or mixtapes or, or, you know, it. I can't, I, there's no proof that that happened. Um, and that's part of the work that I'm doing with the Mixtape Museum is to try to retroactively gather that data so that we can actually prove the impact as close as possible of what you know mixtapes did for hip hop and just music in general. Is is there um, I, uh, summer as we're getting ready to wrap up this segment? Uh, I feel like the the definition of mixtape changes and changes and changes, and, and I'm wondering about like what it's meant over the last ten or or twelve years. What makes a mixtape a mixtape now? I should I should say that as we when we go out of this segment, we're going to go out with a song from Frank Ocean's first album, which is a mixtape mm-hmm. called Nostalgia Ultra. So when we say mixtape, there, what do we mean? I um, I have many conversations with friends that are mixtape purists and anything today is not a mixtape. Anything 10 years ago is not a mixtape. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to think that the mixtape has evolved. Um, when things don't evolve, they disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, and that make that gives me comfort in knowing that, you know, the stack of CDs that are over in that corner they're still mixtapes because they still uphold the idea of what a mixtape is, like in its simplest form. Um, and how I define that through the Mixtape Museum is it's traditionally recorded onto compact cassette. A mixtape is a compilation of songs from various sources arranged in a specific order. Like that's the simplest definition that I've been able to strip down to that will hopefully gather you know, include everyone's definition of a mixtape. But I like the evolution of the mixtape because it mimics what's happening in music. It limits, it, it mimics what happens or reflects what happens in in technology and, and just around the world. And this is, this is where we are. Um, and we're seeing the cassette come back um, into people's memories because we're at a time where memories are comforting, right? Oh, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. So um, I just I just suddenly had this sense now that like 25 years from now, I'll still be on the air, but but I'll be transhuman. You know, I'll have all these kind of, you know, mechanical uh, bionic parts to me and I'll be doing a show about our incredible nostalgia for Spotify or something like that. But uh, for now, uh, we're going to end this segment. Uh, I think Zach is sticking around again. Summer McCoy founded the Mixtape Museum, an online archive project established to collect, preserve and share knowledge of mixtape history. Here's the aforementioned Frank Ocean song from a mixtape where you'll see how much he uses bits of Hotel California. Turning purple as blue Daydreams of the romance Daydreams of you My pretty woman in a ball gown I'm Richard Gere in a tux Getting married in the courthouse Writing vows in a rush 
So you probably recognize that from, well, from what it is, but also from Guardians of the Galaxy, where it's kind of a big uh, example of the joy that Star-Lord gets uh, out of uh, his collection of, uh, or out of that Walkman that his his mother has bestowed him. So uh, I have to take this moment to thank Kat Pastor. She's here in the studio with me. So much fun working in the studio with Kat instead of having to uh, imagine uh, what I wanted to, how I wanted to gesture uh, towards her. Uh, I mean, always in a very amicable way. So, okay, so Kat Pastor is the technical producer here. Uh, Jonathan McPants is the person who put this show together. Thanks to both of them. Uh, and yeah, still with us is Zach Taylor, commercial director and documentary filmmaker. He directed the feature length film Cassette, a documentary mixtape, where I believe you do hear that song too. Uh, Joe Carlo is joining us now. He runs this and that tapes a cassettes only record label. So, uh, first of all, um, Joe Carlo, welcome to our conversation. Thanks, Colin. I've been listening in. It sounds really fun so far. So, uh, let me make the ask the obvious question that perhaps people ask you at family gatherings: Why start a tapes only record label at this point in uh, human history? <laughs> well, much like um, Laurie was talking about, I come to uh, cassettes through punk and zines and sort of the DIY ethos. So if I wanted to start a record label, I wanted to make sure it was something that would be fun and something that I could do all on my own. Um, so, you know, instead of ponying up $1,500 to do a single vinyl release, I could take that much money and buy 800 cassettes, a tape deck, you know, and, and do any number of releases over a few years. So there's kind of a scale issue, right? You can stay at a relatively low scale uh, and, and make this work somehow? Totally. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I make all the cassettes myself in house, which means, you know, say I have a small band just up and coming and I'm really excited about them, but I don't know how people will receive them. Uh, You know, we can make 25 cassettes and once those sell out, we make 25 more. Um, So there's no stock. There's no like uh, inventory to worry about. Um, And we should also say, you know, apropos also of uh, our earlier conversation with Lori, I can't remember whether she said it on the air or not, uh, but she certainly says it in the essay. There's a way in which some people, the first time they're handed an iPod and they put their little earbuds in and they think, oh, this is going to be kind of cool. And there's some people who kind of go, ick, (laughs) there's there's something wrong with this. It sounds like data turned into music. Uh, I'm guessing you must be in that latter camp. Definitely. I I love the warmth. Um, One of the things that we do with the label is with every download, you also get a download of the cassette of um, the cassette ripped to an MP3. So you can hear side A and side B as it would have sounded on a tape for those who don't have a deck. Yeah. So um, and so Zach Taylor, how uh, how common is this? You discovered uh, other examples. Uh, I don't even think they were that hard to discover uh, of people doing what Joe is doing. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you brought that up because I um, I don't know if I closed the loop earlier when I was talking about the uh, Oxford Dictionary. You know, mm. when I saw that headline back in the day, 10 years ago, I thought, oh my gosh, well, somebody's got to say a few words, you know, to eulogize this thing. 
But then, you know, after, gosh, like 15 seconds of, of Googling, you know, uh, I was in the UK at the time going through grad school. And certainly there, 10 years ago, um, labels were starting to pop up. One called Tapeworm. Um, the, there are plenty of tape manufacturers over there. And um, it's all over the documentary. But, you know, the, the now defunct uh, Burger Records. But, uh, and, and now with every passing year, you see uh, the majors getting more and more invested in this. So, Joe, I don't know, I've been teaching this uh, class this semester where occasionally I break into these long evocations of Marshall McLuhan, and I can just sense the entire class going, uh-oh, he's talking about that McLuhan guy again. Uh, we, can, <laughs> we can mute his audio now on Zoom. But, um, but there's sort of, you, one of the things you guys are doing, I sense, is trying to see what, what the cassette medium is uh, and, and maybe what its own internal message is. I mean, uh, could you just tell us about Obvious Wig? As I understand this, this is sort of getting right to the root of the idea of, uh, of maybe the cassette or the cassette player themselves as instruments sure yeah so obvious wig was um a, a band with quotes around it that you can't see um that my <laughs> partner katie and i started when the pandemic hit um and what we would do is just live stream and sit and make music with whatever instruments we had at our hands um and we would use a cassette player and we had some loop cassettes and we would just record you know bits of a movie, you know, we'd, we'd take some old George Romero movies and, and put some gory zombie bits on them and, and work them into the music. And so the idea was, it's not necessarily meant to be music that lasts. Sometimes we recorded it, sometimes we just live streamed it, but it's sort of like, it sort of paralleled the cassette. The quality wasn't great, but it was a lot of fun. You know, there there is, I think also that sense, Zach, um, about the cassette, we've sort of talked about it as a, you know, particularly I think Summer was talking about it as a way in which, you know, a nascent uh, artist could uh, introduce him or her or themselves uh, to the world. But there's also kind of a sense that you can kind of mess around with it, right? There's a, you, you don't necessarily have to rent a recording studio uh, and pay insane amounts of production costs to, I mean, what Joe's talking about right there sounds kind of, once again, scalable to somebody who just wants to make something. Absolutely. Um, here for, you know, the first time in musical history with the advent of the cassette, you had the means by which you could circumvent, uh, you know, the, the man, the establishment, mm -hmm. the, uh, the status quo. And that's to this day, you know, a big part of what excites me about cassettes, um, because regardless of whether they were made, you know, in the 80s, in the 60s or in 2021, um, one of the objectives there is still the same. This DIY, well, you know what? I can't afford Abbey Road. I can't even afford this local place in town, you know? I'm just going to do it in my bedroom. And with that, you get, uh, you get, you know, you capture a sincerity and a human quality that no other medium to this day um, provides you. Mm -hmm. So, so Joe, before we run out of time, you want to mention one or two releases from uh, from your label? Sure. Um, so, in 2021, so far, we've already had two releases that I'm super excited about. The first was Lauren Napier's "Morning Moon," uh, which we call "Whiskey Folk." It's sort of a a, a new take on cowboy poetry. Um, we've had a good host, which is my project. That's sort of a synth pop. And on the 30th of April, we have Spencer Moody's Two Tree Four, um, which is poetry, which I'm very excited about. And the cassette is going to be him reading his poetry and then a Q&A on side B.
Yeah. See, see the first one again, because I feel like our listeners might be actually kind of interested in what, what was it called again? Oh, sure. So that was called Morning Moon, and it's by uh, Lauren Napier. You can find out all about it on thisandthattapes.com. Right. So uh, fittingly, since you first mentioned it, first of all, we're going to thank everybody uh, who helped out today, especially Zach Taylor, who's stayed with us for the entire ride. Uh, and we're going to close uh, out the show uh, with, in fact, uh, Pick Up the Phone by A Good Host, which is Joe Carlo's uh, own project. Uh, so let's um, let's treat you to a, a minute or so of that uh, as we say goodbye. Thanks for listening today uh, and uh, we'll be back with more and more and more. 